Today is Resurrection Sunday, and we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, that the tomb, amen, amen, right, amen, yes, I agree. Uh, we celebrate the fact that the tomb was empty, that, that the grave could not contain him, that the power of death could not even hold him. And that truth is foundational, of course, for us as Christians, because quite literally, our faith stands or falls on on this truth, if Jesus rose from the dead. Paul tells us this fact is not real. If Jesus did not actually raise, then our faith is in vain. And we are actually most to be pitied because we worship a dead man. But of course, Jesus has been raised. And that means a lot for us as Christians. It means we read in 1 Corinthians that we too will one day be resurrected. Not just spiritually, but we will be bodily physically resurrected and give new bodies, imperishable bodies, bodies that don't fail, that don't degrade over time. And I know for many in this room, you rejoice at that truth. You rejoice in that hope in a body that is not breaking down, you know, as all of our bodies are over time. But it also means much for us now that because Jesus died and was resurrected, we read that we too also, those that are in Christ, have died. Now, not a physical death, not yet, but we died spiritually. That old man, that old sinful nature, that own person that we were before Christ, we read in Romans 6 in Colossians, has died. And as Jesus was resurrected, we too have now been resurrected to new life. We've been given new hearts in Christ, new passions, new desires, new love for Jesus, new love for His Word. And on and on it goes as this transformation takes place. And as we think today, as we celebrate an empty tomb, as we celebrate the resurrection, I want to talk a little bit about the how, or ask the question of how. How did these events come to pass? If we were to look at the story of Jesus and His mission to come to this earth, it would seem that it was an utter failure. God sends His Son, the Son of God, takes on flesh, comes down to this world, born of a virgin, lives this perfectly righteous life, and then the people that He comes to save turn on Him. They diminish His ministry every chance they get. They eventually arrest Him, beat Him beyond recognition, literally to the point where you could not tell who He was. And eventually they nail Him to a cross, and he dies. From that vantage point, it would seem that the mission of Jesus had been an utter and complete failure. But as we open God's Word, we see quite the opposite. We see that things went actually according to God's perfect plan. So if you have a Bible, please open to Acts chapter 4 and verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there are some under the chairs that you Burgundy or maroon-colored ones are large print, if that, if that is helpful for you. As we turn there, here in Acts chapter 4, the church is just getting off the ground. Jesus has been resurrected and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. We, read in Acts, or you would, we would have read in Acts chapter 2 about the, the story of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God falls upon His church in power. You have men like Peter who were kind of... Kind of quiet, um, scared, timid men before that time are now speaking and preaching with boldness. 
as they proclaim the Lord Jesus, and they've been arrested. The officials have taken them in, and they are charging them, do not preach about this guy Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. They tell them, you know, whether we should listen to you or God, that's for you to judge, but we cannot speaking about what we have seen and what this Jesus has done. The disciples are then released, and they go back to the rest of the group, and they're praising God for all that He is doing in their midst. They recite the words of Psalm chapter 2 that we saw two weeks ago in our evening service, uh, which is a prophecy about everyone coming against Jesus. We pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They're praying to the Father. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So all these groups are gathered together to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now think about that statement. We have four different parties, four different groups of people. They are all conspiring. They've come together to send Jesus to his death. But God's Word tells us that it was actually all according to God's perfect plan. This is exactly how God had desired and said things would go. If we think about these four groups, they're all quite different. We have Herod. He is one of a number of Herods mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, if you remember early on, in, very early in Jesus' life, a decree went out from King Herod to kill all of the small children because they wanted to, he wanted to eradicate this Messiah that had been born. Jesus and his family flee to Egypt to escape this persecution. And so that is Herod. He has passed away, and now this Herod we read about is his son, one of his sons. This is the Herod that had John the Baptist put to death. This is the Herod that John the Baptist openly rebuked because this man had taken his brother's wife as his own. So John the Baptist called him out on his sin. And the Herods were known as kind of maniacs. You know, he was the king of the Jews, but the Jews never re really recognized the Herods as their rightful king. And these men were really out for themselves. They weren't wanting to help the people in the nation. They uh, were out to get what they could for themselves. We then have Pontius Pilate. Now Pilate, as you read the, the encounter of him and Jesus, we see, at least to some degree, it seemed like he saw that Jesus was innocent. And he tried to stick up for Jesus to the Jews, maybe half-heartedly, but some would call Pilate a coward because eventually he was more concerned about the Jews starting a riot and his bosses coming down on him than preserving the life of an innocent man. So eventually he lets Jesus go to his death because he knew that the Jews would start an uproar if he was to save him because they were crying out for his blood. So Pilate is more worried about self-preservation and he sends Jesus to be executed. We then have the Gentiles. These are the Roman soldiers, the Roman leadership. These are the same ones that put a purple robe on Jesus and pretended like they were worshiping or bowing down to a king, and they mocked him as if he was some sort of fool, beat him, drove a crown of thorns into his head. And then we have the people of Israel, who led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with blood in their hands and in their eyes, sent Jesus to his death. Because the Pharisees, as you know, 
They liked being seen as righteous. They loved the people to think that they were the holy men of God. But what did Jesus do? He called them out on their hypocrisy. And He kind of shattered this veneer of holiness that they had, and they saw Him as a threat. They had power. They had authority over the people. So we have these four groups, all acting out of the sinfulness, out of the wickedness of their own hearts, conspiring against Jesus, acting according to their own free choice. But the Word tells us that they were actually working according to God's perfect plan. That as they were were coming up against Jesus out of their own desires, it was all actually according to God's perfect will. And what we see taking place here is what we call the doctrine of God's providence. That God is behind the scenes governing all things that take place in this world. That He is supporting and sustaining and upholding this universe. I want to read something to you. It is from something called the Heidelberg Catechism. So maybe you're asking, why are we always reading catechisms lately? What, what is the deal with these catechisms? Well, I just want to show you that this truth that I'm trying to bring out is not novel, it's not new. Uh, this document was, was written in 1563, just a teaching tool to teach young people the Christian faith. It was written to bring unity in the churches in Germany during the Reformation, and it was written to help pastors in their preaching. So it says this, What do you understand by the providence of God? What does it mean that God operates in providence? What is His providence? It is this. It is His almighty, everywhere, present power. So God's providence is His almighty, everywhere, present power. Whereby His hand, He upholds heaven and earth. So God is not, as some would say, a divine watchmaker. No, a watchmaker takes all the parts of a watch, all the different pieces, the springs, and he winds that watch and he sets it down and he just lets it go as it's been programmed. But God is intimately involved with His people. So much so that He governs them. That herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things. you got to hear this. All things come to us, not by chance, but through His fatherly hand. That God, God is governing things in such a way that everything that we experience in life has come through His fatherly hand. And if that be true, as I hope to bring out more as we go, then I want to say, this is my proposition to you, that God is working and governing all things. Even the death of His own Son was orchestrated by God, was His perfect plan and will. Because of that, you can trust Him with everything. Everything in your life. If this God that loves us is working intimately in creation, then you can trust Him with everything. My first point, amen. That if this be true, if God is governing all things, then you can trust Him with your finances, with your personal provisions, with your daily needs. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. six twenty-five. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. We have here the middle of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
the longest recorded teaching we have directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 6, verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? I think some of us just need to hear that today. Who, by being anxious, can add a single moment to their life? But man, we love to stress on things, don't we? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, King Solomon in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these, like a beautiful flower in the field. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus explains to us here in this passage that God is providing for all of creation. That the lilies of the field grow because of His provision. That the birds of the air have food. The fish of the sea are able to eat. The deer is able to graze and eat because God is providing for His creation. And if God can provide for birds and flowers, how much more will He care for you? How much more will He care for His, the pinnacle of His creation that has been made in His image? But the only way for this verse to be really true, the only way that we cannot have anxiety, the only way that this is supposed to calm our anxiety is if God is actively working behind the scenes. That's why Jesus can say, don't be anxious, because God is not a mere spectator in your life but He is actually working through providence, sustaining, providing, and governing our lives. He doesn't just sit back and watch and kind of wish things would go alright with us, and, and maybe every now and then when we really, really, really pray, does He intervene? But we see that God is daily providing for flowers and birds and people, and He cares for His people. Because of that, because God is actively at work, you can trust Him. You can trust Him to meet your needs. You can trust Him to provide the things that you need in your life. It doesn't always look like we think it should look. Amen? Sometimes it's hard to trust the Lord and, and the lot that He gives us at times, but we can know that if our Father is working behind the scenes in our lives, then whatever comes our way, lean years and years of plenty, that we can trust that He is there caring for us through it all. Number two, if this be true, that God is truly governing all things, and you can trust Him with your plans, you can trust Him with your future, you can trust Him with your hopes and your dreams. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Proverbs, right around the center of the Bible, chapter 19, verse 21. Nineteen twenty-one. 
as many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that actually stands. Have you ever had the most amazing plans worked out? It seems like maybe sometimes ladies do this um, from a young age and you have, I'm going to get married at this age and he's going to look like this and our wedding's going to look like this and my dress will be like this and I want to live here and, and he's going to do this and our house is going to look like this. Or maybe it's a school that you want to go to or a job that you're going to have or a career that you're going to find yourself in. Or where you're going to raise your kids, or the perfect home that you're going to have, that you're going to have. And the Lord just takes those blueprints, He takes that plan, and He kind of wads it up, and He tosses it to the side. <laughs> I hear that laugh because you've, you've you've been there. But sometimes He does that. We perceive uh, His plan to be better because He sends us down a different road, and we say thank you. Sometimes not. Sometimes we we wish that we would have got what we wanted. But I think what this, this verse is showing us, what, the, song, what the, the author of the Proverbs is saying, is that whether it appears to be my plan, or whether it appears to be God's plan, that His purpose is always what stands. His will, His sovereign choice, is really always what comes my way. So the plans of man are many, but it is the sovereign purpose of an all-good, all-benevolent God that actually stands. And I think this means that God, of course, still wants us to plan. You know, some people read a verse like this and say, well, what's the point of it all? If God's just going to, if His purpose is going to stand, why plan? Why save? Why do any of that? Well, I think He still wants us to plan. He wants us to build. He wants us to save. He wants to envision a future that we would enjoy, that we think is good and right. But in the end, He wants us to trust Him. To trust Him with ultimately whatever it is that comes our way. Whatever doors He sees fit to close and whatever doors He sees fit to open. And again, behind this verse, in the background, and I think in the background of all of Scripture, is the doctrine of providence. Because for this to actually be true, for the Lord's will to actually be accomplished in my life and in yours, He can't be a mere spectator. He can't just be sitting back and hoping that we're going to kind of get on that road He has. But He must be intimately and personally working in our lives through providence. And if that is true, and if God loves us like the Bible says that He does, then you can trust Him with your future. You can trust Him with your plans. You can trust Him with your goals and your hopes and your dreams, whether they turn out like you wanted them to or whether He puts you on a different direction. You can trust knowing that He is working all things for His eternal glory and for our good. Number three, if God is truly governing everything in this way, sovereignly and intimately and personally working in our lives, then you can trust Him even with your life itself. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, it's just a little bit to the left. I just want to say, if you are unfamiliar with this specific psalm, I want to encourage you to take up your bow later today, this week, whenever. Open up this psalm and meditate on Psalm 139. It is a 
beautiful psalm that speaks about our all-knowing, all-seeing God. David says, wherever I go, you are there. A word before even on my tongue, you know it all together. He says, when I was in my mother's womb, you intimately were weaving me together. And then we read here in verse 16. It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You remember when you were a kid, maybe grade school, and it's summertime. I know times have changed, but when I was a kid, and I think when you were, we played outside. You know, we actually went outside, and, and my teenage daughter is giving me a glare right now. <laughs> um, I mean, we had video games. I grew up when video games were just getting popular, but we were outside. It was summertime. We had our bikes. We had our skateboards. We got into trouble. You know, we did whatever we did, played with fireworks. Shouldn't do that, but we we had fun. We were kids. You remember those long summer days, and you're playing with your little. Your maybe you had a bunch of siblings you played with. Maybe you had a neighborhood of kids, and you're running around. And when the sun's up and it's beating down, it's the middle of the day. It feels like you have all the time in the world. And as you see that sun kind of slowly begin to set, you know that at some point you're going to hear those fateful words. Come on, time to come home. And if you're smart like me, you know that once it starts to get dark a little bit, you don't go anywhere near the house. Because they're going to spot you, and they're going to call you in. Right? So you're outside playing with your friends, and you know at some point your time is going to come. You don't want it to come, and as it gets darker and darker, you know it's drawing nearer and nearer until some time you hear those words from mom or dad, come home. Time to get cleaned up. It's time to eat dinner. And as we go through life, it's similar to that hot summer day where we feel in the middle of our life like the day's never going to end. It's nice out. I got my friends. I'm playing. I'm active. Things are going well. This day is never going to end. And as the sun begins to set, we begin to realize more and more that this life will eventually come to a close, that my days are drawing shorter and shorter until that one day when I'm going to hear those words that it's time to come home and I will pass from this life into the next. But as we read this, the, the psalm here, I found it interesting to think that there's actually no untimely deaths. There is no unexpected deaths. Now, from our perspective, we say things like, he went too soon, she went too soon, it wasn't their time. But what David tells us is that God has a book, and all of our days have been formed for us. He has allotted a time for every person in this room that he knows, that we don't know. And I believe this is much more than God simply looking into the future and seeing when we are going to die. But David says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God has allotted, allotted all of us a measure of time on this earth. But what I think should bring us comfort as we think about that, as we trust this God, is that you cannot go a moment before He says. You cannot leave this earth a second before the time your Father in heaven has allotted for you. It is His decision, and His decision alone, as much as we, we, we think that it isn't, or it seems at times like it's not, we read here that God is in control. And again, behind this verse, 
We see his providence at work. If he was just simply hands-off, just simply a spectator, then he would have no say in anything that took place. But because he is the sovereign orchestrator, because he is governing and providing for his creation, then you can trust him even with your own life because it is under his sovereign control. And then lastly, number four, if God truly is governing all things, then you can trust him even with your eternal destination. As the Bible tells us, there is only two. One is eternal joy at the right hand of the Father, and one is eternal judgment, eternal pain and suffering as we bear the guilt of our sin. This brings us full circle back to Acts chapter 4. Where through providence, God not only sends His Son to this earth, born of a virgin, not only does He live a life perfectly upholding the law on our behalf as a substitute, not only does He go to the cross to save sinners from their sin, but He is gloriously resurrected. And all of these events prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before they take place. Only a God that is intimately working through providence could orchestrate the cross. This God that works through sovereign providence, His almighty and present power, where He is with His hand upholding heaven and earth. And He governs governs them so much that herbs and grass and rain and drought, fruitful years and barren years, Meat and drink, health and sickness, riches, poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, not by fate, not by karma, not by happenstance, but by His fatherly hand. Only a God that is sovereign could accomplish the cross with all of these people making all these free choices. I want you to think about all the choices it took just this morning to get you here to church when you were going to get up, when you were going to get out of bed, what you were going to wear, when you were going to brush your teeth, what you were going to eat, who was going to drive, what car you were going to take, what, what route you were going to take, and on and on. Are you going to run that light when it's getting yellow and about to turn red, or are you going to stop? All of those decisions, a thousand just small choices, but you're here because it was God's predetermined plan that you would be here in church on Sunday. And think about that times thousands of people that... that that were involved in Jesus' life. All the decisions that had to be made. But God's perfect will was accomplished on top of all that. And He does so. He operates in a way that doesn't violate our will. It doesn't do violence to the will of man. We work out of our own inclinations, out of our own free choice. But somehow in the background, God is sovereignly, providentially governing our lives according to His purpose. And if He can do all that, Can He not take care of your life? Can He not provide for you? Can He not sustain you? God is at work governing all things, even the death of His own Son. Because of that, you can trust Him with everything. So I want to say as I close, because I believe the Bible is teaching, or does teach, that that God governs our lives, that the things that we do are according ultimately to His purpose. I do not believe that there is anyone here today by chance. 
No one just rolled out of bed and said, hey, I'm just going to go to church today. Maybe you did, but it was still according to God's plan. You are here. And I want to speak to anyone in this room that is, that is a guest, that is a Christian. If you're here today and if you're a believer in Jesus, you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, and for whatever reason, you just haven't found yourself in His church in some time. You had a bad experience in a church. You were you were wounded by someone. You were offended. You were hurt, uh, and it just grieved you to see sin in the church. And you left, and it's been some time. Maybe there's some sin in your life. If you were honest, you would say, you know, this this thing is kind of taken over, and I've fallen into it, and it kind of has me right now. Maybe you've just got busy. Life is busy. Things have to get done, and some of those things got pushed to Sunday, and something had to give, and it was church. Maybe you've never been part of a church. Maybe you got saved outside of the context of a local church, and you've just never really seen the need, never seen uh, the purpose of Christ's church. I want to say to you that it's no accident that you're here today. And I do believe that God wants you to know something. No. Claim to have divine knowledge. I don't claim to have a word from the Lord, but I do claim to have this word, which is divine knowledge, which is His instruction for us. And if, and if any of these things includes you today, I want to say to you, you need the church. You need the church. If you are a Christian, you are His sheep. But you have removed yourself from His flock. And there are so many blessings that take place in being part of a church. And it is a major part of what it means to be Christian, to take part in a local congregation where corporate worship takes place, where like-minded, broken sinners that have had terrible weeks, that have stuff going on in our lives, come together and worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where sharpening and discipleship takes place, where we learn from God and learn from one another, where we get to see His work displayed in those around us, and we get to tell of what He's doing in our lives, or tell when we're down, or tell when we had a mountaintop experience and everyone needs to know what God is doing. And His church is where we get to serve Him. And you can serve Christ outside of the walls of the church. But it is a great blessing to use the gifts that God has given you within the local congregation for the edification and building up of His church. And if you're a Christian and you're here today, I believe that, that God wants you to hear that. Now, I just want to say this. While we would love to have you here, this is not my guilt trip that you have to now join our church because you came. My hope and my sincere prayer is that you join a church, that you plant yourself in a Bible-preaching, gospel-believing, gospel Christian church where you can grow and sit under the preached Word and, and fellowship with like-minded believers. If you're here today and you're, a not, and you're not a believer, for whatever reason, you've come today, maybe you were invited, and you would say, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I know it. I want to first off say welcome. And we are blessed to have you here today. We are delighted. You are always welcome. But I do believe that it is God's love and great mercy that He has providentially brought you here to this place today to hear this word. Because as we celebrate the resurrection, it points us, Calvary's cross. And at the cross, we see God's justice and God's forgiveness. His justice and that He is a righteous and holy God. And all sin 
will bear His holy judgment. Just as when a crime is committed on this earth, we expect justice to be served. Because God is righteous, He must punish sin. But when we look to the cross, we see that justice was served on His Son. As He takes the guilt from all those that believe in Him and places it on His dear Son. And we also see forgiveness. For all that look to Jesus by faith, all that trust in Jesus for salvation will be forgiven of their sin. So if you've come today to this place with a burden of your sin, with, with the, the burden of, of your guilt, burden of shame, maybe you've gone through life trying to find meaning and hope and joy in the things of this world and, and you found that they just do not satisfy I want to tell you today that your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Your greatest need is to, fi- is to find peace with your Creator. To have the guilt of your sin removed. To find freedom in the name of Jesus. And to do that, to boil it down, He basically wants us to do two things. Admit who we are and admit what we need. Lord, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I have fallen short. I have lived my own way. But Lord, I turn to You today and I admit my need. I need Jesus. I recognize that He is the only way. He is my only hope. He is the only path to forgiveness. And I receive that forgiveness by faith. There's no pre-described prayer for me to tell you to recite. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Anyone and everyone that turns from their sins turns to Jesus Christ, will be saved. Amen.